She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode six, Kingdom Come. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and it originally aired on Friday, November 29th, 1996 at 9 p.m. In the episode, someone seems to be reinstating the Inquisition against the clergy, torturing and murdering them via medieval means. Frank teams up with a former partner to track and stop the killer. This episode was written by Jorge Zamacona and directed by Winrich Colby. Zamacona is a writer and producer who worked on shows including Homicide, Life on the Street, Oz, and City on the Hill. And he co-created the series 10 to 8, Officers on Duty. He acted as a producer on 12 episodes of Millennium, and he'll write one more this season. Colby has been directing television since 1977, with credits including Magnum P.I., Knight Rider, Spencer for Hire, Hunter, and four Star Trek franchises. He will direct a total of four episodes of Millennium. Mm. Yep. So, Tacoma, Washington. A choir is practicing in a church, and we see an aged-looking hand grip a pew as a person stands. But then from behind, we see the person whose hand it is, and they appear to be a young man, and they enter the confessional. Inside, they speak very softly and cannot be clearly heard by the priest, especially over the sounds of the choir. At one point, after hearing the man say, Are you feeling close to God tonight, Father? The priest says, Excuse me? And the man, still rather quietly, replies, no, I won't. Tell me your sins. Tell me what a liar you are. The priest asks him, what's your name, son? The man leans close to the screen, and then the priest does similar, and the man whispers, bless you, father, for you have sinned. And then he gets up and leaves. So the priest also leaves the confessional, but the man is gone. So the priest goes outside and he calls, son? looking for the man. And as he enters the yard, a car starts up and its headlights blind the priest. And the priest is like, son, wait a minute. And he approaches a still running car, but finds it empty. He looks around and calls once more, son. And then he's hit from behind with a tire iron. And a man stands over him silhouetted by the church and says, Inquisitor Deum, father. And then we're cutting back and forth between the scene that we're doing and then the choir practicing and singing. And the man drags the priest through the bushes and says, Est in nomine Dei, Padre. The priest is raised, chained to a long stake as wood is piled around his feet. A flare is struck and clearly illuminates the face of the man as he lights the pyre. In the church, the choir continues, but the priest leading the practice suddenly hears something and has them stop. And then screams can be heard from coming outside. They all run out and they see flames rising from behind the hedges several yards away. They arrive as the pyre rages and the burning priest screams fade into the roaring flames. And then we get the opening credits. Yeah. Woof. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's awful anyway. <laughs> Jeez. The show does not pull punches on gruesome murder at all. It's very into like gruesome deaths. Yeah. So then after the credits, we get an epigraph again. 
This one is, and there will be such intense darkness that one can feel it. Exodus 10, 21. So you guys know me. So across 54 translations, I could not find an exact match for Exodus 10, 21. So I was looking because I'm like that. The closest were the New American Bible Revised Edition. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that over the land of Egypt, there may be such darkness that one can feel it. The International Standard Version, then the Lord told Moses, stretch your hand toward the sky and there will be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that one can feel. And the New Catholic Bible, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the heavens. Darkness will come upon the land of Egypt so dark that one can feel it. So, hmm. yeah. So I think they're just, you know, kind of trying to make it sound groovy. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Other common translations are the American Standard Version. And Jehovah said unto Moses, stretch out thy hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. The King James Version, and the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven, and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And then the New International Version, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So most of them tend to end with the which may be felt or can be felt as opposed to the one can feel it. A lot of them also do that, that you can feel it. So I think it's just like word choice and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's a weird flip of intent though, because as we see in previous ones, they usually don't use, like they'll say like Exodus 10, 21. They don't use the entirety of Exodus 10, 21. They use part of Exodus 10, 21 or whatever quote they're using. But in the Bible, God is telling Moses he can create the darkness. Whereas here, the darkness is definitely meant to be of like some ill intent. So I don't know if like Millennium is siding with Pharaoh or what. I mean, I would expect that from Stargate, but maybe not Millennium. I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, and look forward to more Bible study corner with Nick as the episodes progress. Yeah, unfortunately, I think there's going to be a lot of that, which not your Bible study corner, just the religious themes in the series. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm not super into. And I am but... actually, so I did consider going into comparative religion when I first started going to college a long time ago. I was really into all that kind of stuff. At the same time, I was also really into like UFOs and comparison stuff. So I was all just jumbly up. But I am actually, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of that stuff. But I am about to embark on a full reading of the Bible. I've decided especially with this series, I am going to do that thing. I'm not going to do that, like read the whole Bible in a year thing where you follow it. Cause I've already, it's April, right? I've already missed the start of <laughs> January, but I think I'm just going to get one and I'm going to just go through it and like, just read it. And then maybe okay. I'll do the Quran and then I need to find some other like similar books. And I think I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. So. Okay, cool. A little, a little side hobby. Maybe I'll start a Bible podcast. Who knows? I doubt it. But, you know. <laughs> All right, I will not be co-hosting that one. <laughs> I have to find somebody else. <laughs> so then we're inside the yellow house and Frank is happily making breakfast and Jordan is eating. She's at like the little breakfast bar in their kitchen. And Catherine comes in. And she's like, oh, what's for breakfast? And then she like asks Jordan what she wants to do today. 
And Jordan kind of tilts her head and she's like, why aren't you working today? Like, I don't know. Kids are kids don't know what's going on. And Catherine's like, it's Sunday, a day of rest, which, you know, sure. It is Sunday. It is. A lot of people which I never work. understood because almost I mean, I my calendar, I, I use calendars to start with Monday as the first day. So that Monday through Friday is like days one through five, then Saturday, Sunday. But if Sunday is supposed to be the day of rest and Sunday is the seventh day. And yet the majority of calendars in the Western world start on Sunday, which means Sunday is the first day. I never understood that. Anyway, sorry. An aside. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Time is all made up. It's all an illusion. So then there's a thunk sound heard in the living room. And it sounds like maybe something happened on the porch or at the front door. So Jordan's like, what was that? And so Frank, like his face kind of goes neutral as you know, Frank's face tends to do when he's like, "Uh Oh, danger. So he's like, it's okay. And he goes to see what it is. And uh, the music gets kind of ominous as it does does. in the show. And Catherine picks Jordan up because you can't leave her sitting at the breakfast bar when you go check the front door. No, it might, there might be like a head on this porch. You don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe you shouldn't bring the kid out, though, which they do. (laughs) But anyway, Frank enters the living room and he sees something and he rushes to a broken window. And we see out on the porch, there's a bird that had flown into the window. And that was what the thunk was. And the bird looks pretty dead, to be honest. So Frank scoops it up and he holds it. And Catherine and Jordan come out and Jordan looks upset. She's like, it's a bird. And Frank's like, yeah, it flew into the window. And Jordan's like, why? And he says, well, it saw its reflection and got confused. And Jordan's like, what's the matter with it? And Catherine's like, it's just hurt, which <laughs> I don't think it's just hurt. Yeah, I, sure. I have a little editorial note here that says, I'm pretty sure both Frank and Catherine know the bird is dead and are putting off telling Jordan. Yeah, so, I, I think that's yeah. pretty clear. So <laughs> inside, Frank puts the bird into a shoebox that's lined with a towel. And Jordan's like, is it going to get better? And Catherine's like, we hope so. And then the telephone rings. Mm. So Frank answers and Catherine's like, who is it? And Frank says it's work. So he gestures for a pen because he needs to take some notes. So Catherine gets up to get him a pen. And Jordan's like, the bird isn't moving. And Catherine hands Frank a pen. And she's like, it's it's just resting. The bird's just resting. And But then she... <laughs> Jordan's like, it's not breathing. <laughs> like she knows. She's like, uh, I don't think that's true. And then on the phone, Frank is like, we're in Tacoma. So he gets the info he needs and he hangs up. And Jordan asks, is it going to die, mommy? And Frank and Catherine just kind of look at each other like, oh, no, we need to have this conversation. Yep. So Frank pulls up to the church in his red Jeep Cherokee. And honestly, he needs to wash it. It's a little dirty. I, so, I need to wash my car, too. I'm so bad. <laughs> I'm the worst. Well, because then it just rains again. And so I don't know. It's it's a struggle. But yeah, he gets out and someone at the crime scene kind of waves to him. And we will learn that this is artist Cohen. And so an officer lifts the crime scene tape and lets Frank on site. And then Frank greets artists and asks where they are. And she says, cleanup stage. Tacoma PD is a little overwhelmed, but they're willing to accept their help. So they approach a man and artist introduces him as Detective Kearney of Tacoma PD. Kearney says he understands they might have some insight into this. Frank says in 1992, there were a series of homicides involving men of the cloth. He and Miss Cohen were part of the FBI team that investigated. Kearney asked if they found the killer. Frank says no. So as they approach the remains of the pyre, artist tells the viewer basically the name 
Father Silas Brown and his credentials, Georgetown University, former professor of International Institute of Catechetical and Pastoral Studies in Brussels. Kenny is like, a Jesuit? And then asks if that's relevant. Frank has flashes of Father Brown screaming in the flames and then says that he doesn't know. Kenny is kind of like lost in some remembrance and talks about how he went to a Jesuit high school and basically kind of implies that he got a lot of corporal punishment at the school. So uh-huh. yeah, they he left an impression does. on him, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Frank walks around the standing stake and he sees some burned residue adhered to it. He tells artists that Brown was wearing a San Benito. Kearney's like, what's that? An artist tells him it's a cloak that heretics were forced to wear in the Middle Ages before they were burned at the stake. So Ooh. not wrong, I guess, because we saw it happen. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure with the witnesses and stuff, they kind of know what happened, too. So, yeah, well, yeah. he was already pretty good on fire by the time they saw what was going on. So. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, you still know kind of what happened. <laughs> yeah. Frank asked to see the forensics report. An artist tells him it's the same material. Frank is like, it was only a matter of time. The artist says the killer is very precise. He treats the scene like a ceremony. Kearney is like totally confused and is like, Middle Ages? What kind of ceremony? Frank says a medieval one. The stake is freshly cut, probably locally. Peat and wood for fuel. Kearney asks if they think it's the same guy. The artist is like, very possibly. Frank says, four years ago, three men were murdered in a similar fashion. Then it stopped until last night. And then he gets up to leave. So mic drop, boom. <laughs> artist is like, maybe. Frank is like, mm, nope, this is it. Boom. So, yeah. Yeah. So artist Cohen is played by Lindsay Krauss, who we somehow overlooked as appearing in Millennium when we briefly talked about her CV in our discussion of Communion, where she played Anne Streber. Mm-hmm. So Whitley Streber's wife. So somehow, I mean, she's got like 79 credits on IMDb, so it's easy to just scroll. But it's like a yeah. lot of like, like little one-off stuff. So, yep. Yeah. And then Detective Kearney is played by Terrence Kelly, who played George Usher in season one, episode three, Squeeze on the X-Files, where he was promptly killed by Eugene Toombs in the teaser. So Yeah, he looked so familiar to me. He's also one of those guys who's just been in like one or two episodes of like everything, it seems like. He's been in Dead Like Me, I Zombie, Psych, and two episodes of Supernatural, plus obviously Squeeze. So yeah, well, I we know if you're in Psych, is going to recognize your face. <laughs> I mean, I've seen that oh. show several times over, so probably, <laughs> yes. That's one of the shows I just throw on when I need something mindless to watch because, yeah, it doesn't require a lot of brain power. garbage. <laughs> no, okay, I've never, no, again, we, again, we know I've never seen it. So, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's it's fun and it's easy and That's it doesn't another require one of a those lot of shows stress. That Apple would give out free episodes when they were doing uh-huh. their Yeah, Apple I had a couple stuff, on and I never And sure. I never watched it. So. Yeah. Yeah, but I did. I did get. I did get them because it was free. Fuck, I'll download it. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but never watched it because you guys know me. Not really a watcher. Anyway, <laughs> in the morgue, artist reads the autopsy report over the burned corpse. There's evidence of blunt trauma to the occipital protrusion on the cranium. Residue in the air passages indicates the victim was alive when he was fastened to the stake. And Frank's like he asphyxiated. An artist says carbon monoxide robbed the lungs of oxygen. When the threshold drops below 21%, thankfully you pass out. Although he didn't look particularly passed out while he was on fire. So I don't think and it screaming. No, it helped, him, but... helped him that much, really. But that's a nice thought, I guess. The lies we tell ourselves. Yeah, I guess so. 
Frank says they both hoped they wouldn't be here again. And Artis is like, but here we are. So Frank bends down to look at the body. And of course, he has those visions that he has. So he sees this flash of flames. And then on the actual corpse, he sees something. So he calls Artis over and pulls a coin out of the mouth with a pair of forceps. It was burned into the flesh of the tongue near the rear of the mouth with, oh, oh God. Anyway, okay. Things I don't want to think about. The coin is a Spanish peseta. <gasps> no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad we got a Monty Python reference in here somewhere. So Artis asks if it's a new killer, but Frank posits that it's a break in pattern, maybe a refinement or something symbolic. Possibly this means it's an escalation. Artis takes the coin and says maybe they can get a fingerprint off it. So Frank steps away from the morgue and then he sees someone and he asks if he can help him. And we learn that he's a priest, Father Schultz, and he was sent to make arrangements for Father Brown's body. He was a friend of Brown. And they have a discussion about faith and Frank tells him not to expect faith to have anything to do with why Brown was killed. Schultz says the desperate expect faith to fill the void. And when it doesn't, they blame the clergy. Frank says he can't really speak to that as he finds his own faith lacking. Schultz mentions that he's ministered many who have lost their way. And Frank says he thinks his time would be better spent trying to catch the man who killed Schultz's friend. Schultz nods and Frank leaves. Yep. So time for that stuff. The, the entire scene <laughs> is just to establish where Frank stands on religion pretty much. So, yeah, they have a pretty you know. reasonably lengthy conversation that we just kind they of do. Yeah. So. In Seattle, Washington, in his basement office, Frank is looking through a book with woodcuts of medieval torture, as one does when you're just chilling in your basement. Oh, yeah, totally. And then, yeah. And then he gets an email from artists with photos from at least one of the previous crimes. And this one is from St. Louis, Missouri. There's a charred body hanging chain to a stake. Catherine comes down and tells him that Jordan had a rough day. She's having trouble dealing with the bird situation. So apparently she started asking whether other things die, too. Like dogs or horses or cars or trees or mommy and daddy. So Frank is like, well, what did you tell her? And Catherine says she mustered all of her clinical powers and she lied. She told Jordan they would both live forever. And then she asked him to back her up on that. Frank smiles <laughs> and says that he will. So. It's cute. It's cute. <laughs> <laughs> so she starts to leave. But then stops and asks if he's working on the murder of the priest. She saw it on TV. And he kind of nods. And she wonders why someone would attack churches and the clergy, symbols of what are supposed to be safe havens. And he says, that's what they're trying to find out. And so she asks him to speak to Jordan as soon as he gets the chance. And he says he will. And then she goes back upstairs. And then he goes back to the photos and he sees something. So we get a little enhanced in hands, but nothing too egregious. I mean, compared to like, Unruway that we just watched on the X-Files, like nothing that extreme. So mm -hmm. he kind of just like zooms in and kind of does like some contrast stuff, basically. Although it's a lot for that kind of like 90s computer, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, or even that kind of, if those are, well, I guess if those were, those probably weren't digital photos to begin with, they were probably scanned. Right. So, so depending on what resolution they big, were scanned. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's probably a little faky, but it's not super egregious. Like you could see that actually happening. So... Anyway, on the stake in the photo, he is able to bring up the words that are carved into it that are sermo generalis. Ooh. So 
Frank flips through his medieval torture book and he finds an image of a woman being burned at the stake. And along the length of the stake is the word Sermo Generalis. And the caption of the image reads, the grand ceremonial proceeding of heretics. That would not have lasted long in the Middle Ages. No. (laughs) Almost all those woodcuts don't show men being burned. It's always women. Yeah. (laughs) We all know I'm a heretic. So, uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. So then we're at Laramie Municipal Golf Course in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And we see a ball struck off a tee. And then the golfer watches it. And then he winces. And his golfing partner, another older guy, walks up and tells him to take a mulligan. And the other man is like, nah, then I'll just be chasing two balls in the rough. So at least he's honest, but he's not a good golfer. So they part ways and agree to meet up for another round tomorrow. So in the rough, the golfer is looking for his ball when a voice behind him asks, this yours, Reverend? And the golfer turns and we see the man we know to be the one who burned Father Brown alive. And he says, tough lie as he reaches down for the ball and he's got his aged hand again. So as we will learn, and it makes sense given what we know, though it will actually turn out that it's kind of unrelated, what the makeup is trying to do with his, what I'm calling old age hand, is actually supposed to be that his hand was badly burned, maybe four years ago, and has relatively healed. It looks like old age makeup to me though, except for like, the doesn't have like liver spots and stuff, but I don't know. I don't know what a hand would look like it was super burned and then healed so yeah no, yeah it's kind of it's kind of wrinkly and a little puffy but it's hard to say so i originally thought it was old age hand like at least it's not a salamander hand so that's good so <laughs> yeah no more salamander hands chris carter please <laughs> if we could just not ever do that again that would be great yeah so yeah but it's supposed to be that his hand we will learn that his hand was burned and so that's mm-hmm. why it looks the way it does so anyway so the golfer asked if the man is playing this hole and the man says that he was considering it. And then the golfer's like with only one club. Cause he's got like a golf bag, but like there's only one club in it. And the man says, one's all it takes reverend. And then the golfer's like, do I know you? And the man replies, I kept my vows. I loved honored and obeyed. And the golfer apologizes. He's like, I don't remember. And the man kind of sarcastically says, yeah, it's just a job. And the golfer's like, I've been retired for four years now. And then the man kind of tisks and he says, retired from God. And the golfer has been like, strangely, like this creepy ass dude is in the woods and he's like calling you reverend and you don't know him and he's acting weird and you still you're going to get close to him because you got to get that ball. Like, dude, just go buy another ball. Like, just leave. Anyway, but the golfer yeah. has been like slowly approaching him, getting closer and closer. And then the man says, never pass up a chance to improve your lie. Right, Reverend? And then the golfer slash Reverend bends down to pick up his ball. And of course, the man brings a golf club down on his head. Boom. And it's yeah, super predictable. This guy, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's like, oh, it's daylight. I don't I'm not really in danger. But yeah, he should have just like made a wide berth and gone around that guy and gotten back out into the open and away from him. Yeah. Golf balls aren't that expensive. I don't think so. I mean, it sounds like he's using a fancy ball. They say it's like a Titan three or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. I'm sure it's still like, you know, 10, 20 bucks for a pack of four or something. I don't, I don't really know what golf balls cost, but yeah. Cut your losses. Yeah. So we actually get a death with a commercial now. 
oh, we were talking hey. about how with Millennium, we don't usually get commercials and death like we do with the X-Files, but here we actually got one. So. <laughs> so then Frank goes into Jordan's room and it's dark and she seems to be asleep and he approaches the bed and he smiles and then he bends down over her and she starts giggling. So she's not really asleep. She's pretending. And he's like, you were trying to trick me, weren't you? And he laughs and she keeps giggling and she says, yes. And Frank tells Jordan that mommy said that she had some questions for him. So she asks about the bird and she's like, it died. What happened to it? And he tells her that nobody knows. Some people think that the soul goes to another house. And she's like, a yellow house? And he's like, maybe. And in the background, we see Catherine has come up to the doorway. And so she's kind of watching. And Jordan asks if God lives there. And he tells her that lots of people think he does. And Jordan's like, do you? And he kind of hesitates. And he says that if God does, he would probably tell her that it's time to go to sleep. So good answer. <laughs> fine. <laughs> fine. So he smiles and he turns back and he tells her to say goodnight to mommy. So they all say goodnight and he kisses Jordan on the head and she rolls over and goes to sleep. So it's cute. Yeah. Yeah. Little thing. yeah. So I had this question last episode when she goes to see Frank and is talking about how like she left Jordan with like some friends back in Seattle. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I realized I'm like, where's Benny? Where's the dog? Yeah, that's it. I totally forgot about the dog. So like I wasn't even thinking about it. And then with this I'm... one all about the bird and death and stuff, I'm like, where is the dog? <laughs> like that would be you think would be the next step. Would she be worried? I mean, she does say like, you know, do dogs, horses, cars, you know, mommy and daddy die. But like, where's Benny? Yeah, hopefully. OK. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they took it to Scully's mom's house. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give him to Scully, whatever you do. <laughs> They're like, here, Margaret, you need another dog. You've already got Queequeg because Queequeg did not die in Quagmire. No. And so Queequeg, who did not die? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Charles Dickens action there. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I always think of Gonzo saying that from the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, I mean, that's still Charles Dickens. So, it is. You know. I mean, he's playing yeah. Charles Dickens. Gonzo yeah. is Charles Dickens in that movie. But like, I just yeah. hear it in Gonzo's voice. So anyway, um, wow, we got <laughs> off the rails on that one. But yeah, I totally forgot they even had a dog. So that's not good. <laughs> Down in the basement, Frank is printing off the photos that he has enlarged and enhanced. And then he gets an email from artists. And the subject line is re-gif, but she's not sending him gifts. So she's not no, she's just not. sending him fun gifts of like Dean Winchester eating pie or something. It's nothing like that, which I guess if she had in the 90s would be pretty amazing anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be a whole mystery into itself. Anyway, the text of the email reads, Reverend Marcus Crane, DOA, bludgeoned and drowned. Do you think this is our guy? Call me ASAP artist so she's pretty direct she doesn't waste words she's just like hey like she's kind of treating it like a an old-timey text message really yeah i would say yeah her emails are shorter than most of my text messages so yeah, yeah. and then an image is also included and it's a diver holding a plank of wood in the water with a body chain to it underneath 
So Frank flips to a page in his book and he finds an eerily similar image of a woman tied to a plank and being pushed underwater by a man. And the caption reads, ordeal by water. And then Frank picks up the phone to call Artis. Yeah. So at the crime scene in Wyoming, Artis reads Frank the report. The victim is Marcus Crane. He was a retired Presbyterian minister. She says that this is the same killer. This is the first time he's targeted a Protestant. Cause of death was blunt trauma, wedge-shaped, likely a golf club. But he actually died from drowning. And then Frank, of course, you know, has that little flash vision of crane drowning. And Frank says it's the torture of heretics. It's just another method of determining the piety of the accused heretic. An artist asks what he's trying to tell them. And Frank says nothing. The change of method, the details like the coin, they aren't for them. They're for the killer. Artist says his denominational change seems to indicate he's becoming more random. But Frank says it's the opposite. He's becoming more precise. Frank believes he knew these men. Maybe he was a seminary student, an altar boy, a member of their congregations, but he had some kind of personal connection. So then Artis says there's one more thing. They found a man's wedding band in the victim's stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little weird. That was fast. Yeah, it was fast, and it's a weird thing to find. Frank asked if there were any inscriptions on the ring. There weren't, but then Frank has another vision. And he says the man was gagging. There was maybe something else that was put in his mouth that they've missed. So then we see like it's a little later and they're draining the lake and filtering the output. So they have like this tube that's like pulling the water and mud out of the lake. And then it's like draining into this thing with like a mesh screen so that all the big stuff doesn't go through and the water goes through. And they're not really finding anything. And we also see officers are sweeping the banks of the lake. So they're kind of looking around for stuff that might be there now that the water has gone down. And then Frank's like, where was the body pulled from? So she's like, oh, I think across the shore. So like they go over there and in the mud, Frank finds a gold woman's engagement ring and it's soldered together with a wedding band. And there's an inscription and the inscription is the initials JMM. Ooh. Yeah, might be a clue. Why weren't they searching on the bank where the body was pulled from? I like wondered. Randomly, like draining the lake from just some random spot. Like it was easier to get the pump there or something. Like what? Yeah, I wondered the same thing. I mean, maybe it was like, a. I mean, from a television standpoint, it makes zero sense. Like from a practical standpoint, you could be like, oh, well, maybe. They couldn't get the pump on that side or something like that. Maybe road yeah. access is harder, but it was super weird. I'm like, why don't they have the pump where? Yeah. The why body aren't you just like pulled? searching where the body was? Why are you searching? Like, because there's dudes like all around and like way like they're at one location. So like, say they're at like point A, let's make a triangle. And so then they're going to go to point B. That's where he finds the ring. But like, there are dudes at like point C, like looking on the shore too. It's like, why are you wasting your time looking over there? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> So anyway, I don't know. So then we see the killer's hand, the messed up one, which is his right hand and the okay one, which is his left hand. And he opens an old suitcase or a trunk or something. And he pulls out what looks like a very old child's dress. It was probably white once, but now it's all yellow with age or something. Anyway, it's not looking great. And there are also two little frilly socks that he lays on the table beside the dress. And we can see that the damage to his right hand goes up his forearm as well. 
So additionally, the thumb and forefinger appear to have not been burned, or at least not as badly because they kind of appear normal. So like it's mainly the the outer three fingers and then the hand itself and up the forearm. That's all like I guess was burned badly. So then finally he pulls out an eight by ten photo from the suitcase and it's in a frame, but the glass is broken. And in it, we see the man, he's holding a girl about Jordan's age, actually, with curly dark hair. And we assume what is his wife is next to him. And then he sets the photo on the table next to the child's clothes. And then he has this like old bayonet blade and he presses it into his left hand. And we see blood dripping from the wound. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So then we see artists is examining the ring under a microscope. And we learn that the initials were done by hand, but very skillfully. And then by the content of the ring and the maker stamp, they assume that it was possibly purchased by a GI in Europe during World War II for his sweetheart back home. Artist says that even if he was drafted to 18, that would still put the owner of the ring like in their 70s. And Frank is like, no, the killer's a younger man. So they're like family heirloom. And then an agent drops a report on the desk and the report reads that the John Madawan convicted felon, 35 years old. He arrived in Cheyenne yesterday on a charter from Tacoma and he used a credit card to check into Motel 8 on Route 60 at 8 p.m. Frank is like, John Madawan, JM. And artist is like, no middle initial. And then Frank is like, will you take two out of three? <laughs> so apparently she does because she's a fan of meatloaf. And then a SWAT team bursts into the motel and pulls a guy from the bathroom. But we know that it's not the right guy. No, it is not the right guy at all. Yeah. <laughs> so so then we see a church and a woman is going through the office, making sure that everything is closed up. And there's one room, the door is open and on the floor, there's just papers all over the place. And so she tries to flip on the lights, but they don't work. And there's a lit flashlight on the floor amongst all the mess. So she <laughs> enters. Yeah, don't enter. Run and call. Get out of the building. Go to a neighbor. Call someone. Like, oh my god! Clearly, someone was in anyway. I'm sorry, but like, there's a flash on the ground. Someone ransacked the room. Just get out. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> she does go in, and then she kind of like there's a there's a turned over like you know floor lamp. So she like stands it up, and then she's like, "What's going on?" And she picks up the flashlight, and then the killer appears behind her. And she turns like, ah, and he like, boom, hits her and she falls to the ground. And then it's commercial. Uh-oh. Yep. That's incredible. I mean, I don't know what I would do in that situation, but yeah, just, I don't know. I don't know. Get out. Get out of there. Get out. <laughs> so then we're in Rockford, Illinois, and police are in the room gathering evidence. Detective Romero is begging a bloody baptismal record when Frank and Artis arrive. An artist introduces them. There are bloody prints everywhere, Romero tells them. But he's like, why do you think this is your guy? And Frank says, well, you found a Spanish coin and the man we're after has left them behind as well. And then he asks if they got a description. We learn that the church secretary, Beatrice Crowley. Crowley? Yeah, Crowley. And I know it's a good name. She's only able to tell them that a man attacked her and hit her across the face and then fled. So at least she's alive. She did not die or anything. She just mm -hmm. got smacked in the head, which I'm sure wasn't fun. But, you know, she still <laughs> lived to tell about it. And Frank asks if anything is missing. And Romero says they won't know until the secretary is released from the hospital and can go over everything and see what's there and what might not be there. 
that might be as soon as this afternoon, but they're not sure. And then he gets called away. Artis says this is a big change in MO. And Frank's like, no, he was looking for something. Something important enough to make the trip to Rockford, Illinois. And through the window, he watches some children. They're singing outside in the yard. And suddenly he realizes what the killer is doing. He's not killing men. I mean, he is killing men. But he's killing Faith. (gasps) So Detective Romero is played by Tong McBeef. And I'm actually wondering now if he was teased and called McBreath when he was a kid. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Anyway, he has been in three episodes of The X-Files, most recently in season three, episode 18, Teso Dos Bichos, where he played Dr. Luton and was killed outside his Jaguar, possibly by a Jaguar or a bunch of cats. We don't know. Anyway, actually, we do. We saw the episode. Anyway, I'm going to say anyway, a hundred times <laughs> I don't, right now. I don't, having <laughs> seen the episode, I'm still not sure we actually know, to be honest. But anyway, yeah. yes, let's move on. Yeah. He will <laughs> appear in one more episode of Millennium in season three which seems to be a thing with people so far this season. I've been noticing that people appear in season one and then they come back in season three. Huh? So, yeah. Guess it's been long enough. They can play. Yeah. At least role. like the, like the, like the one role kind of people, not like the recurring character stuff, but like mm-hmm. you're just in like a random, like, especially like if you are going to end up maybe dying, not that we know, I'm not, I'm not trying to spoil it. I'm not saying Romero's going to die, but like, if you're just in a, like a one shotter, then usually come back to someone else in season three. Episode one was heavy on that. We had like three people who were in episode one and then are coming back in episode three. So one of them has a recurring character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But. Then we see the killer and he's putting tools into a bag. He's got like vice grips, that kind of thing. A lot of like, you know, things you would think of for torture. And he yeah. zips the bag and there's a knock on the door. So he looks through the peephole and then he opens the door slightly and the chain lock is still attached. And the man outside calls him Mr. Calloway, and he says that he'll need the card holder to sign the slip. And Calloway's like, they can't. The card holder's dead. And the man is like, excuse me? And Calloway says, it was my wife. She's the card holder. She's dead. Is that a problem? And the man apologizes for his loss, but he says the credit card company won't authorize the charge without a signature from the card holder. So he, he can't use that card. So Callaway does like the whole wait a minute thing that you do, like the little gesture and closes the door. And then he opens it without the chain. And he's like, is cash okay? And the man's like, oh yes, we still take cash. No problem. So he pays him some cash. And then Callaway asks if he knows a Reverend Harnett. And the man thinks, and he's like, yeah. And Calloway's like, well, I came to see him, but he's not living where he used to. And the man's like, oh, yeah, Hardin moved into his old man's place after he died a few years back. And Calloway's like, oh, great. Could I get the address from you? I really want to visit him. And the man is like, sure. And so he leaves probably to go get the address. And Calloway closes the door. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Also, maybe just don't give random people other people's addresses or information. <laughs> just as a rule, if someone asks you for that, don't don't give that stuff out. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> also, I mean, like phone book, maybe. Like, just use phone book. You probably yeah, that's there. true too. I mean, it's that's probably like where the guy's gonna. Be. I mean, he he had to thank if he knew him. So I'm not sure. Like he's like, gonna go like, oh yeah, let me go get that from my personal address book. He's probably just gonna go look in the phone book and give it. To yeah, him. So, true. Anyway, so Frank and artists are looking at a messed up print on an overhead projector. And she says they thought it was a partial, but it turns out it's the whole print. Seems it was altered or there was an attempt made to remove it. 
And then Frank has a flash of fire and a woman screaming. And he's like, maybe it was damaged like in a fire. What if the killer suffered some emotional catastrophic loss that consumed his faith but didn't kill it? And the people he's killing were an important part of that faith. So, hmm. Romero comes in and says Beatrice Crowley was able to go through the files and that some were definitely missing. A whole year's worth of christening records. Huh. So, yeah. So a doorbell rings and the door opens and we see this Calloway is outside and he's like, Mrs. Harned? And she's like, yes. And he says, I'm an old friend of your husband. And she's like, oh, she gives him way too much personal information for someone Uh she's never met and doesn't know. And then long story short, she has to leave to go get her husband's vestments from the dry cleaners so that he can perform the christening for their granddaughter. So she's just like, come on in. I got to go. See you later. And Uh, leaves. (laughs) I I mean, we know this guy's a killer. I get that she doesn't have a lot of reason to suspect he's anyone malicious or harmful. But I just, I don't understand people who are that casual. They're just like, sure, come into my house. I've never seen you before. My husband's in his like boxer shorts. Just come (laughs) on in. It's fine. I'm going to run an errand. I'll be gone for approximately 45 minutes. So you have fun. Do whatever it is you want to do. It's just so ridiculous to me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Callaway does seem a little unsettled by the fact that Harnett is about to christen their granddaughter. She's mm-hmm. like their granddaughter. But he does go in and he closes the door as Mrs. Harnett leaves. Yeah. I almost thought he was going to like make an excuse and walk away or something when he heard yeah. the granddaughter thing. Cause he does look very torn about it, but then he mm-hmm. goes inside anyway. So, yeah. So then Beatrice Crowley is on a speakerphone and Frank asks her if the records included the names of whom performed the christenings. And she's like, yeah, I remember them. There were only two. One of them died a few years ago and she gives his name. It's like, Oh, you're such a sweet man. And then Frank is like, what about the other one? And then we see Callaway in the house and he's all Reverend Harned. And because as Tori mentioned, Reverend Harned like comes in and like in his undershirt and his underwear. And he's like, who are you? Because there's a stranger in his house. And Callaway is like, I was just talking with your wife. My name is Gallon Callaway. And he asks Harned if he remembers him. And Harned doesn't. And it's like, I think you should leave. And Callaway unzips his bag and he begins removing his tools. And then Harned is like, you need to get the hell out of my house. And then the phone rings and Callaway's like, aren't you going to answer that reverend? So Harnett yeah. does go answer. We should mention, I mean, he's old, right? He's an old guy. He's not like he's going to like fight Callaway or something. So yeah. Harnett answers the phone and it's Frank Black. And he tells Harnett that he is in danger. Meanwhile, Callaway is like talking about how during the Inquisition, priests were forbidden to draw blood so they would heat their tools red hot so the wounds would cauterize and he's heating all of his tools on the stovetop and like the tips are glowing red he sets them down on the thing so that they can stay under the fire and he's like no blood no mess and Harden is watching all of this and listening to Callaway talk meanwhile Frank is like talking as well and he has not answered Frank at all so Frank continues anyway and he's like don't let anyone into your house and then Harden is like I already have. Yeah. So. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not a great situation. <laughs> yeah. So then Frank and artist and Romero arrive and they go in and Romero's calling for Reverend Harned and artist kind of hangs back in the yard and in the kitchen, Frank and Romero find the body of Harned on the floor covered in wounds. He is 
did. Yeah, I, I, mm, this really bothered me. And I think it's just because, like, I feel like you've got to have a uniform closer. You could have called someone to, like, go to the house and get there a little quicker. I mean, we'll learn. I guess I should save this for the next scene, maybe. But they definitely had, like, it took them some time to get there. Like, I don't know. It just kind of annoyed me. I'm like, <laughs> why wouldn't you, like, have people with sirens going to the house? I don't know. It just seemed strange that they just they know that the killer is in the guy's house. Like it just didn't seem like they maybe pulled out enough stops, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So like me later, they're in the office and artist is pissed because they missed the killer by mere minutes. And she's also upset that she's taking this one so personally. And she doesn't understand why after all these years. And Frank posits that it's the coldness, it's the calculation and the victims merciless acts against the merciful an artist is like i haven't been to church since i was eight then they talk about their faith and their children and like how they're raising their children and frank says maybe faith is like the picture album left in the closet we don't go back and visit it every day but we need to know it's there we need to know it's safe so we can pass it along when the time is right or maybe god is speaking and we're not listening (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's about the same level to me, honestly. I'm just yeah. like, okay, sure, whatever. Yeah. Again, this is a very long conversation they have. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. It goes so. on for a while. Yeah. During this conversation, we also learned, like I said, like they missed the killer by minutes. And like, I don't know. It just still to me, I was like, maybe you guys should have called someone else to go to the house. Anyhow, it's fine. Yeah. So Frank looks at the window and he has another vision of Callaway's wife in the fire. He realizes the killer is from here. He was in the house when they called, but he didn't hurry or alter his plan. He was committed. So he like knew people were on the way. Again, should have sent someone faster. But you get the luxury of calmness in a murder when you know your surroundings. So this is a guy who felt comfortable enough to take his time. Mm-hmm. He knows the police are slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He knows that they're not going to have some guy around the corner in his cruiser come check things out. So this is where whatever tragedy occurred to him happened. (gasps) He's come home. I guess so. Yeah. So Romero and artists are looking at records on the computer. And Romero reads one off. February 14th, 1989. Joan Calloway and her six-year-old daughter Sarah died in a house fire. Gallon Calloway, the husband and father, survived but suffered third-degree burn to his arms and hands. Ooh, Valentine's Day, too. That's kind of sad. I know. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't really care. About yeah. I mean, it's kind of arbitrary, but still, if you're yeah. like, you know, deeply in love and that kind of stuff with your wife and child and having it happen on Valentine's Day kind of totally sucks. Anyway, artist continues reading and it says teacher of religious studies at Edgewood Catholic High School. <gasps> Romero's kids go there. So he's not happy about that. Mm-mm. And then they found out that the mother's maiden name was Mosier. Janice Marie. <gasps> GMM. So the ring was his mother's. Mm-hmm. And then Frank reads that in 1992, he was convicted for manslaughter while driving under the influence and sentenced to five years. He was paroled after three in 1995. That means he didn't stop killing. He was interrupted. Frank mm-hmm. asked Romero to find out where his wife's funeral was and where his daughter was baptized. Both will be Protestant, he bets, and one will be where he strikes next. Oh. Yeah. So they unwittingly put him in prison for something different 
Mm -hmm. for drunk driving so he was murdering and then also getting drunk and driving around which yeah is is also very bad yeah he's distraught his wife and child were killed so it doesn't really excuse drinking and driving or or killing people so (laughs) whether intentional or not i mean he was he was unintentionally killing people and he was very intentionally killing people so you know yeah Anyway, so inside a church, we see a small Bible study group taking up three pews in the front. And I'm guessing the guy reading from the Bible is like a pastor or minister or something. He's just in regular clothes, though. He's not like in, you know, like mm-hmm. vestments or whatever. So Callaway walks in and he fires the gun twice at the ceiling. Everyone screams and takes cover. And he tells them that if any of them try to leave, they will die. But if they sit down and sit still, he will tell them about the fiction and the fallacy brought to them. By the salesman of salvation. And then the pastor minister dude kind of approaches Callaway and asks who he is. Callaway pulls the hammer back on the gun and he points it directly at the man's chest and says, I am the lamb. And then it goes to commercial. Yeah, I rolled my eyes so hard. I just, I'm sorry. I just, mm. anyway. Hey, religion leads to being a drama queen. Okay. I guess this is not even the religion part. It's just the, yeah, the whole like, the whole setup of it. I'm just like, this is just so ridiculous. <laughs> anyway. So now we're in Rockford, Illinois, and it's 6:02 p.m. I mean, we're still in Rockford, Illinois, because we've been there the whole time. But yes. And Callaway is at the pulpit and he's reciting a portion of Psalms 103.17. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And the, the congregation is very frightened below, obviously, because this guy has a gun. Outside, a SWAT team arrives. Inside, Callaway begins to go off script and he tells the fiction and the fallacy he promised. And it's just like, there is no peace. There is no forgiveness. And tears are streaming down his cheeks and he begins to weep. And he says, just lonely nights spent in an empty house. And then he shouts, rejoice, thy kingdom come is here. And he pulls open his jacket and he reveals a homemade bomb strapped to his chest. Whoa. I mean, he's exactly. Escalation. Yeah. It's, It's completely predictable. So anyway, the people in the pews scream and we see this helicopter spotlight shines through the window. And obviously like. Yeah, it's not a great situation if you're stuck in the church with this guy. Yeah. If this episode was five years later, he probably would have cried Allah Akbar when he opened up his church. So <laughs> at least we didn't get that action. So that's oh, good. God, seriously. <laughs> Especially because most terrorism in the United States is white Christian men. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, millennium, you know, before his time. Yeah. Or during his time. <laughs> during after i mean the 90s were not a great yeah eternal millennium eternal (laughs) so the phone in the church rings and callaway picks up his gun and he goes down to the floor of the church and he's like where's the phone and the pastor stands and he like tries to point out the phone he's kind of like it's there 
you know, he starts to say like, it's over there and Calloway shoots him in the leg and is like, where is the phone? And it's like, dude, he <laughs> yeah. was just trying to I tell know. you where the phone was. And you <laughs> I know. Shot like, him. Chill out. He's trying to tell you where the phone is. He like, literally he starts him. to say it when he shoots him. <laughs> like, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. I mean, but he is like Murtaugh. He shoots him in the leg. He wasn't trying to kill him. He yes. shot him in the leg. Because well, he's going to blow everyone up. So I guess it doesn't really matter. Uh-oh. But outside, they hear the shot. And Romero's like, we need to go in. And Frank is on the phone waiting for Callaway to answer because he's the one calling. And he's like, we don't need to make things worse. So Callaway finally finds the phone and he answers. And Frank's like, there's no reason to shoot anyone. And Callaway tries to be all smart. And when Frank says he knows why Callaway is there, he's all smart me. And he's like, right, like, you know why I'm here. And Frank's like, you're there because of Joni and Sarah. And Callaway drops the phone and starts to break down. Yep. Boom. Frank nailed it. Frank nailed it. Called your bluff there, dude. Yep. Yeah, Galen Calloway, we know who you are and what you're up to. (gasps) Yes, and in our summary, we are going to keep saying Calloway, 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 but Frank always refers to him as Galen, so he Mm -hmm. always uses his first name, just so, you know. So when Calloway doesn't come back to pick up the phone, Frank hangs up and tells Romero to lose the helicopter and that he's going in there. And Romero and artists are like, what? You can't do that. Like, you know, they give him all the like, you know, hostage stuff, blah, blah, blah. And he takes off his coat and says that he thinks he can reach him because he knows what he wants. So Frank enters. And from Frank's point of view, we see the pastor is like laying in like the aisle and like he's kind of bleeding out because he was shot in the thigh. <laughs> and everyone else is still in the pews and they're all turned around. Calloway's nowhere to be seen. But that's because he is right beside the door. And so gun comes up. And Frank is like, I'm unarmed. I just want to talk. And so Calloway tells him to talk then and leads Frank to the front of the church. Frank tells him to let the people go. And Calloway says they have to be sacrificed. And then Frank is like, just like Joni and Sarah were sacrificed. And he tells Calloway that he hears him. He knows what's going on. And Calloway calls him a liar, just like the priests. And he makes Frank kneel before the altar and tells him that the first lie that passes his lips, he'll blow his head off. So... I'm going to play 20 questions, I guess. Yeah. Frank asked him what he wants to know. Calloway asked him if he's afraid to die. And Frank says, yes. And Calloway says, then you don't believe in God. And Frank says, he hasn't thought about God in a long time. And Calloway's like, why? And Frank tells him because he's seen the innocent die. He's seen children murdered in their beds, the weak and the helpless slaughtered without purpose, without sense. And so Calloway's like, well, then you know the truth. That God has abandoned us. That's why you're afraid to die. Just like I am. And Frank is like, no. And then Calloway's like, you're a liar. And he raises the gun. And Frank is like, I am afraid to die. But not like you. You're afraid to die because you fear God's judgment. Calloway's like, no, I've lost my faith. And Frank is like, no, you didn't lose your faith. You tried to kill it, but you couldn't. He's like, I've seen your rituals. And he kind of almost like he's impressed. He's almost kind of got like a little smile. He's like, I've seen what you're doing. He says that Callaway uses the tools of his faith to try to kill it, but he can't. It's inside of him. And then Callaway begins to weep and is like, it is inside of me. It won't die. (laughs) And he's felt God watching him and Joni and Sarah watching him. And Frank tells him that God doesn't want him to kill himself or anyone else. And Callaway is like, no but I have to. And then he gets up and he stands behind Frank 
and he continues that he has to kill them because he can't kill God. He says, I can't kill him, but he's referring to God. Mm-hmm. And then Frank thinks like he's going to get shot. He's just like preparing for it. Uh-huh. And then the gun fires. And then the SWAT team bursts through the doors and Calloway is falling to his knees and he drops the gun. And Frank turns to look at the entering SWAT team and Artis and Romero are there. And the SWAT team push Calloway to the floor. And then Frank watches as they remove him from the church. So I guess he just shot like nothing. I thought like he was going to shoot himself. Yeah, I did too. But But he's alive. He's like weeping and everything. So I don't know if he maybe wounded himself or if he just like shot the gun nowhere. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know either. Because, yeah, they just walk him out and doesn't look like he has any big wounds on his head or anything. No, he's just like crying, crying, crying. Yeah. Yeah. So then it's dark and a cab drops Frank off in front of his house. And he enters the bedroom and Catherine is asleep with a book on her stomach and he sits on the bed and he looks at her and she wakes up and apologizes for falling asleep. She tried to stay up and he's like, it's late. And she asks if he's okay. And he says, yeah, he was just thinking about Callaway. He felt how human he was. So inundated by pain, fragmented by grief that it led him to surrender his humanity. Catherine says she knows, and it scares her. He says they can't stop evil, but they can't lose their faith either. And she's like, is that what we need to teach Jordan? And he says he's going to tell Jordan that bad things happen. The bird died. It upset her. But they have to balance sadness with hope and faith. Catherine tells him she still has faith, even in a world where men like Callaway exist. Frank takes her hand and he says that he does too. <gasps> That's the end. That's the end. Dun dun. Executive producer Chris Carter. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that when Frank is talking about how human Callaway was and how fragmented by grief he came, that he's like obviously describing himself. He's totally projecting. I mean, we kind of get that thing through the whole series so far that frank is the reason why frank does what he does is like to try and protect Catherine and jordan and so i don't know that he's sure that he would fare any better if like he lost Catherine and jordan in similar situations yeah so it kind of it kind of felt that way when he was given that little you know i felt how human he was and he describes like yeah so and that's a, that's a recurring theme in the series so yes that the monsters are human and that anyone could be pushed to that limit, maybe. Yeah. Or... And that he does what he does because of Catherine and Jordan, right? I mean, that's why right. that's why he originally retired from the FBI was because of the photos that he got of them. Mm-hmm. And then that's why he agreed to join the Millennium Group to do that. That's why they have this special yellow house, like all the stuff, right? Is try to protect them from the world, create like a little bubble. Mm-hmm. And that he's like the guardian of that bubble. So, yeah. Yeah. Which I get. But I also... get it too. I get it. I get his motivations. And it's not a bad conversation, but like I was reading something on the AV Club by Emily St. James. I don't know if she's Emily Vanderwolf. I don't know if, was it her or Zach Hanlon? It might have been Zach Hanlon. One of them talking about millennium was talking about how like no one in the show talks like a person like every single conversation is just like this deep meaningful like thematic thing and it's i mean and that's fine once in a while but it does get a little bit like okay but you could just like 
have a conversation about like pancakes or something for five minutes it wouldn't kill anything i mean that would be a long time for a tv show but you know you just have like a normal conversation and not just have these deep meaningful talks but this one it's fine it's good it kind of you know at the beginning of the episode they weren't really sure what to teach jordan about the universe and the world and now they've kind of come to a conclusion so it works it just i felt like the dialogue in this episode just all of it was completely tedious but this is not my wheelhouse right like i don't really know a lot about religion and like this kind of stuff just isn't something i'm super familiar with or super interested in really so it just kind of uh. like, okay, that's, that's what this episode's about cool i have to admit when i first saw the title of kingdom come i was like oh oh no it's gonna be some like religious fanatic and it's gonna be ridiculous and i was like okay well let's give it a chance it's millennium maybe it's it's really interesting and compelling and it'll be really good and i just it I mean, was it could not. have been about Superman coming out of retirement. But. It could have been. Yeah. I just, yeah. This was not really my, Batman my favorite kicking episode. Batman his ass, as usual. <laughs> yeah, this episode didn't grab me. I wasn't really, I was just, honestly, I was super bored the whole time. I didn't find it very compelling. I wasn't really into it. What did you yeah, think? No, well, the scenes <laughs> with Calloway are very, they're on. They're very Donnie faster E. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is going to come up a bit in the next episode as well, implicitly and explicitly. But yeah, just like his dialogue, almost like, and I don't want to, I don't want to do the stereotyping thing, but almost like, and I think that's just the thing they did with people who were killers is to kind of almost portray them as almost like spectrum or something like that. Right. They're like, they're like othering. And so they have like different speech patterns and they talk differently and all that kind of stuff like whenever he's talking it's just kind of like slow and boring and like some of the things he says are almost like action movie like quips and stuff but then they're just delivered like flat and cold with like no like you know kind of thing Mm -hmm. so it's kind of yeah i don't know and i don't know how much of that is acting how much of that is writing how much of that is directing so i mean the scenes in the church with frank were very well done like the emotional stuff was done well. So I'm not sure that maybe it's an acting issue, but then again, doing that kind of acting is different from doing like the, just like talking action yeah. acting. Right. So it could be, you know, yeah, it's hard to say. I think it's in this episode specifically, I get the feeling it was because they're trying to portray him as someone who is calm and collected and knows what he's doing and has a mission from God or whatever. Now, obviously this is not yeah, a mission from a mission God, this is a mission God, against God. Basically. But I think that was probably why his delivery is very like dry and very like, I am in control. I don't, yeah. you know, I'm not losing my shit. I mean, I, I guess you couldn't. I wonder, because since like he's like, like he mentioned at one point, like he said doing what he does because he can't kill God, right? I can't kill him. So that's why I have to do what I'm doing because that's the only way I can get to him is by doing this. It almost seems like I'm surprised they didn't bring up like Satan or the devil at all. But then that would imply faith as well. And the whole point is that he's trying to imply that he lost his faith, even though he realizes he didn't. Mm -hmm. So it just seems, especially with millennium, like bringing up the devil and stuff would be something I could see maybe happening. Yeah. That never comes up. It's more of just, against god as opposed to being well who's against god the devil they don't go that way so they don't know any of that kind of stuff i mean because they don't want to do the whole satanist thing no because they want to portray him as a guy who is 
been through this horrible thing and he feels like he should have lost his faith because God let this happen, but he yeah. can't quite stop believing. So he keeps trying to kill people who Don't instill belief, um, which is fine. The, the conceit is fine. I just didn't. I don't know. I didn't connect with it. I didn't really care when he was on screen. I was like, okay, just no, whatever. Let's move on. Okay. So yeah, it was not my yeah. favorite episode. <laughs> I from was point bored. one from the very teaser. I was like, I am going to have to hold back and not do a Monty Python thing. And then as soon as the Spanish coin came out, I was like, Oh fuck. No, you got <laughs> to throw that in. So, yeah. <laughs> I originally had a note at the end of this. It was like this entire episode. I have been holding back saying and then when the coin came up i was like nope i'm just gonna throw it in there, throw it in there. So. yeah oh dear oh dear the spanish inquisition so yep so i'm guessing this might end up being possibly your lowest rated episode so far yeah what are you thinking, what are you thinking number wise I'm so honestly, currently your lowest is the judge, which, uh-huh, is and then which was I, I gave the judge a five. Wow, I was generous. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> that was the I should have probably given that one a four, to be honest. I might have to adjust things. Ooh, um, okay. For this one, honestly, it four doesn't coming in hot. Here's the thing. Like it works like thematically, like on paper. This episode doesn't really have any problems. And it gives us some character development with Frank and Catherine and Jordan and that that's fine. It was just to me, it's biggest crime. was just that it was boring. I was so bored. I just wanted it to stop. So for me, that's like almost worse than being egregiously bad because it's just, I don't want to watch it. So I'm honestly juggling a two and a three here. That's whoa, where I'm at. Yeah, I really whoa, did not whoa, like whoa. it. And again, I just, I think it's partially because I don't relate to the, I don't really you know, and I don't relate to the material either. So it's like, I don't, okay. and, you know. So I'm, so I'm, so I'm, I'm going to, I am going to, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm going to, I'm going to advocate a little bit here. Just to maybe pull you away from the, from the ledge and maybe pull you away from the two. <laughs> so like, so I, I do think that the scene with the church was well acted. Right? Oh yeah, Very for well sure. Done. Yeah. And then also there, you've mentioned that how it was like when, when Frank and Catherine in the basement and talking about how like, you know, she was like, told her we're going to live forever. And they kind of joke, you talk about how that was a cute scene. Mm-hmm. Also again, and this happens repeatedly in the series. And again, this whole series is really carried by Lance Hendrickson. Honestly, without him, I think the series would be highly diminished, but yeah, he does the scenes job. with him and Jordan were also fantastic when, you know, she's pretending she's sleeping and they're laughing and giggling and he, you know, like you, like, again, you get the feeling like this is really like a father daughter. Like he totally loves her. You actually get, you, you feel that I think it's not just like, like, Oh, those are actors. And I will say for this show, one thing I really appreciate about it is that the wife is not kept in the dark. You know how, like, I don't know how many procedurals you've seen or like shows like, you know, about my job is tough. I can't even tell my wife what's happening. And like, you know, the poor wife is always like, what's going on? It's like, it's too dark for you. I can't tell you. Yeah. Well, she does almost Um, get like co-starring credit. So yeah, I mean, she does, but like, I just like that. She, he doesn't shut her out. He doesn't like lock her out of the basement and not allow her to come down and see the photos or whatever. Like, I like that they have that kind of relationship where they're actually talking about the things that he does and the darkness and all the evil yeah. and it's not something they didn't that he... do it this episode but i do notice they seem to have a system where usually when she's coming down she will call him first to give him time to uh-uh. like 
turn down the photos or close oh, totally. the computer screen or whatever kind of thing. They didn't do that this time, but normally it seems like she usually like gives a little heads up. Yeah. Like, and hey. it's not that she probably wants to see that stuff. It's more that he no. isn't like, oh my God, I can't let you see this dark part of the world no. or whatever. Like he obviously wants to protect her and Jordan, but they do seem to have a, a really good relationship. And I like their parental skills. Like I think they're good parents and yeah. I do have to say also, I had mentioned in the first episode that uh, Jordan wasn't really my thing. Like I yes, kind of did. <laughs> because of so I do think, I mean, especially at that age, right? I think the first episode and the second episode, there was a time frame difference because either they got a different dog or Benny got big between episode one and episode two. Like he was a puppy and then he was like, I'm kind of a dog. And I realized that can happen like from like three months to six months, right? It can, you can, that you can grow. But again, that still is a, a little bit of length of time. After the pilot, Jordan does not bother me as much. I think she's kind of cute. And, okay. and so and so some of that may have been like just them trying to get a feel for the character and making her all cute and girly and whatever kind of thing. But it also could just be like she like hits that point where it's like, I'm not at that age anymore. So at that development or whatever kind of thing. So I'm not sure. But yeah, so I have come around to Jordan. So just want to clarify that with people who were like, <laughs> Nick hates kids. So. <laughs> well, you didn't say you hated kids. You said you love babies and older kids and that, that that age range is just not your jive, not your thing. Yeah, You don't understand children that small. So yeah, there's a certain age that just, yeah, they irritate me. There's also, a, there's, certain, there's a certain thing too with the voice that children of a certain age have. Where they sound like a super high pitched Elmer Fudd that just <laughs> irritates the crap out of me. And so, yeah, so she didn't really have that thing going on. But I think it was, yeah, I'm not sure it was gone. But yeah, but Jordan has kind of moved past that. Yeah. Bit, so. I like Jordan. I like the family. I guess I'll give it a three because it's okay. not, it's not like egregious, like, oh my God, I would tell people to steer clear of this episode. It's more that I just honestly was bored. I was bored. I didn't okay. I didn't care that's for fair. it. That's fair. We've talked about how I've been more of the X-Files episodes yeah, before. Yeah. So I think so, that's just, yeah, not my, not my jam, but it's not so. objectively bad. I just did not enjoy watching it. So there yeah. you go. No, I, I can get it. I can get it. Like, there were, like I said, like some of the dialogue, especially by Calloway, is kind of like, oh, just like move along. Come on. Yeah, let's go. So, and just like he gives off that vibe again with Donnie Faster, right? Like anyone who ever met Donnie Faster in Irresistible, you're like, are you not picking up any signals <laughs> from this guy? Like, what is wrong with you? And the same thing here. And then also, there's the whole like everyone's just like, yeah, let me do it. And like the, I'm like, oh my god, Harnett's wife. Like, what are you doing, lady? I know like, that was almost as bad as the woman with the daughter in Irresistible, who's like, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. just. My daughter goes yeah, to school here. She comes exactly. home at this time. She's alone from three to five. You know what I mean? It's just like, why yeah. are you telling strangers this kind of information? And why are you letting them in your home in such a yeah. casual we way? A, you don't we know keep this a spare person. key under the mat or something yeah. like that. Well, there's something like that going on of like yeah. uh, telling them how to get into your house. Basically. I know it was ridiculous. So yeah, that was the same, same feel, same vibe. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to go with a five. Okay. So this is my lowest episode two because my previous ones were sixes. So there was just some other stuff in there. Like I, I did the one thing I, and I read this in the book by Robert Shearman. He also kind of had this feeling like 
it seems like all like the one previous killing we get is someone else being burned at the stake. Right. And then the first killing we get is burned at the stake. And then after that, the killings are kind of like they're still like a ritual kind of thing, but they're kind of not as cool. They're kind of boring. Like, oh, we're going to like do the ordeal of water on this guy and just drown him, basically. And this guy, I'm basically just going to torture to death with hot tools. Like, okay, I get it, but it doesn't seem like, especially because both the ordeal by water and the tools, those weren't methods of execution. I mean, they often resulted in like inadvertent execution, but those were more of implements of confession. As opposed to like, you know, confession, you're burning someone at the stake. You're not looking for a confession. You're looking to kill him. There's no stopping that. Right. But the other ones were more, those were just, those were just straight up torture and the people would just die. Yeah. Whereas the burning the stake. And so it seems like he like kind of, yeah, I mean, he does obviously change his MO. Right. But I kind of thought maybe it was going to be based on what the person did would maybe affect it. But then we found out the previous ones were also burning at the stake. And then he just does the first one as a stake. And then the next one, there's like, nope, nope. So that yeah. was, a, I thought that was a little weird. The modus operandi shifting so much. Yeah, weird. it did. Almost like despite all the ritual and the ceremony he apparently had, the preparation, it almost seemed like they were like, oh, this guy's near a lake. I'll drown him. Oh, this guy's in his kitchen. So I'll burn him with tools. Like, yeah. It just seemed weird. It's more like I'm worried about the convenience, but also the ritual is, you know, paramount to my thing. So it's like, well, yeah. which is it? Is it opportunity or is it you have yeah, to you can't know. keep carrying big old giant hewn steaks? I mean, to be everywhere. fair, that's very complicated. So, so yeah, I mean, that yeah. wouldn't even fit in my car. I don't know how I would get it from point A to point B. Yeah, well, that's why you got to cut it locally. That's why you got to cut it locally. <laughs> so he was in the back of the church, just chop it away. They didn't hear him. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Um, so, yep. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We appreciate yeah. it. We hope you're enjoying Millennium Mondays. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, in search of Wednesdays as well. Yes, we also hope um, you're enjoying those. Yeah, but if you're not, and just like a Millennium, that's cool. That's fine. <laughs> We're not picky. Whatever. Well, you get you two per week. You get a little change up. You might like one. You might like the other. You might like both. So totally. If you don't yeah. like either, I'm assuming you're not a Patreon supporter. So <laughs> unless you're going through the back catalog, in which case, maybe who knows? <laughs> yeah. Hey, whatever it takes, man. Whatever it takes. All right. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz and The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us for the next Millennium Monday in Episode 7, Blood Relatives. And we'll try to figure out if if the the truth truth is is still out out there. The truth is what we make.
sirens outside. Popo. Yeah, could be. Could be an ambulance. Could be fired. Arrest the cats for interrupting the podcast. <laughs> oh, maybe it's yeah. KPS. They're coming to get you, Tori. <laughs> I only feed my cats wet food three times a day. So Lock is on the other line, dialing. It's like, KPS, excuse me. I have to report a lady who won't <laughs> give us treats. She only gave me one treat today. They got cat gogurt and everything. Only got at 12 o'clock, there's only one breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> They get those like go. I call them gogurt. They're not really yogurt. They're like the cat like lickable treat tubes. They're like mm. a Nava brand. Um, they had chicken and cheese today, so that was fun. Oh. That's like their favorite flavor. Wow, very spoiled. Anyway, 